1: Council to President Trump, Jenna Ellis.
2: Well, good morning. And the presidential race for 2024 is really just amping up on both sides. Um, It is still my prediction, and this is just a prediction that I do think that Gavin Newsom out of California is going to eventually run for the Democrat nomination and whether or not the Democrats uh, try to push Joe Biden aside or uh, semi-retire him and, you know, the the Academy Award music kind of riding him off into the sunset, however they uh, decide potentially to deal with that. Um, all of the headlines and all the interviews that Gavin Newsom has done uh, over the past month or so uh, really has indicated to me at least just from a media perspective that he is gearing up to run because there's no real reason to do a lot of that and have a more national perspective. He went after uh, Greg Abbott, governor of Texas uh, this past week. He's had his wife make some confessions uh, to media over the last few weeks that uh, really could be termed opposition research, but they got in front of it. So a lot of things just signal to me that that is a potential. And then you also have the RFK Jr. factor, which I think is quite fascinating. And of course, on the, the GOP side, we are gearing up for the first primary debate. And before that, uh, just yesterday, uh, there was an announcement that Tucker Carlson is going to be holding a Blaze Media event uh, with a, a leadership summit. This is the, uh, the family leader that is an organization that's working with the Blaze and will have a leadership summit this Friday, uh, the 14th, I believe that is. Uh, that will have uh, at least Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, and Ron DeSantis. And uh, just yesterday morning, shortly after the program, uh, Bob Vanderplatz, who is the the uh, leader, the CEO of of the Family Summit. Uh, tweeted this, I learned last night that Donald Trump will not attend the leadership summit this Friday. So thus our lineup is set. I think it's really fascinating that Donald Trump is, as as I predicted, probably not going to engage in the debates. And that I think is going to cut both ways. Uh, a lot of people want to see him and want to see him on the debate stage. And he's kind of running more as an incumbent and saying, well, uh, you know, I really don't have to go down to that level because I'm at least according to the polls, which I don't particularly believe but uh, the polls are saying you know he's he's anywhere between 30 ish points ahead so why would he he is instead attending ATP USA event that uh, his team tried to get ahead of the narrative on uh, lacking the debate and tried to point out that Governor DeSantis wasn't going to attend TPUSA. So it's all kind of, you know, this back and forth of media posturing. But the bottom line here is that I think it's really good for everyone to hear from all of the candidates. And I think that especially these one-on-one sit-downs with Tucker Carlson will be very effective, especially for people like uh, Governor DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, who, uh, of course, are really the next kind of candidates that a lot of, Attention has been turned to. Um, So we'll see how that goes and we'll still continue to cover that. But we also want to focus on state and local elections. In a presidential year, we can't forget that it is so important to vote down ticket. It is so important to fill out the entire ballot, vote your values. And of course, uh, we here at AFA, of course, champion that and like to bring on a lot of different candidates. Uh, on the state and local level so that uh, you can hear from them and uh, you can find out more about them. And one of those candidates is Chris McDaniel. He is running for lieutenant governor out of the great state of Mississippi that AFR is located in. So, Chris, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. And uh, I think a lot of people in Mississippi are already familiar uh, with you uh, through being a a senator there. Um, So why now the shift toward lieutenant governor and what do you hope to accomplish?
0: Well, you know, I, uh, I wake up every morning frustrated at the state of this country. And I, I never thought it would be as bad as it's become. And it happened very, very quickly. And so the thought process is this. We've got to find places in this country to hold the line and turn this nation around. It's not going to happen in Washington. Washington's incorrigible. It's broken. It's lost. But the states are still those laboratories where we can still push back and secure our values and our conservative principles. Mississippi is one of those places where we still can build a fortress and defend what's left of this country. The present lieutenant governor has been leaning over, working with, compromising with the Democrats. In fact, he's empowered the Democrats in the chamber, and that's the problem. Consider this. We outnumber them 36 to 16 in the chamber. We should be getting everything passed we've ever dreamt of passing, but we can't because He appointed 13 of those 16 Democrats to powerful chairmanships, and they're running the chamber. He is an old-school Democrat. He is killing our legislation. So when you think about it in terms of historical opportunity and you think about it in terms of just how bad this country has fallen over the last 20 or 30 years, it infuriates me that a so-called Republican lieutenant governor would be empowering our adversaries, would be helping our political enemies. We've got to learn to fight back, and that's why I'm running. I want to fight back and change things right here in Mississippi.
2: And I think, uh, Chris McDaniel, that that message does really resonate with a lot of uh, conservatives and a lot of people that are tired of being the party of compromise. And if you if you look at the national level, I mean, I can imagine if, for example, uh, you know Speaker McCarthy and the Republicans were conceding a lot of these uh, these chairmanships and other things just in uh, under the pretext of, of bipartisanship and, hey, we'll get along. I mean, is there really any reason that the current uh, lieutenant governor would would be making these types of decisions? I mean, is there is there any sort of benefit for him personally? or I mean, that, that really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to a lot of people why a Republican would choose to do that.
0: Well, he does it because he's not a Republican. You know, I would call him a rhino, but that would be a disservice to rhinos out there. He is an old school Democrat. It goes so far back. We had a, a Republican governor. The first Republican governor in our state since Reconstruction was Kirk Fordyce. Delbert Hoseman endorsed Ray Mabus over Kirk Fordyce, for goodness sakes. Years later, when he was Secretary of State, Donald Trump asked him for records to help preserve election integrity in our elections. Famous quote, he told Trump to go jump in the Gulf of Mexico. This is who he is. It's who he's always been. He's the one guy. He's the reason we still have the income tax in Mississippi. He's the reason we still have the grocery tax in Mississippi. He's the reason that we still can't prohibit, for some reason, you know, men using the, the locker rooms and the restrooms of women in Mississippi. He stripped that language out of a bill. So he's an old school Democrat masquerading as a Republican. So, of course, he's going to appoint his friends, the Democrats, to these powerful chairmanships. And that's what he's done. And And that's why it's so frustrating, because you have a state like this that's supposed to be bright red, right, a strong conservative state. But the American Conservative Union has ranked us based on our legislative priorities and positions right now Michigan has a more conservative legislature than Mississippi. In fact, we have the second most liberal legislature in the entire southeastern United States. That's because of Delbert Hoseman. That's the problem.
2: Hmm. Wow. And, and, you know, I, as I'm listening to you, um, you know, I think a lot of people who maybe hear about politics, but they're not quite as engaged to understanding, you know, all of the personalities, all of the politics that are that are being played, um, really don't see how a lot of a lot of this works and functions. And you know, there are so many things. This is reminding me of, of what um, I have heard from friends in the state of Texas, you know, about how there are different uh, different just favors that that people give to their friends and you know, and other things, rather than genuinely serving their constituents, and uh, you know, and I think that th- th- those who are paying attention in Mississippi will also remember uh, the defeated amendment that I think it was you that offered to fight uh, a- and prevent the. Um, the forced vaccination and, and provide a religious exemption and the defeat of that amendment. And, you know, that was such a major issue. And I think uh, for precedent value as well, not only from the, the state level, obviously there was the OSHA case, uh, but that was something as well that, uh, that, that I think that was, that was you that offered that amendment. Is that right?
0: It was. We offered the amendment to a bill and once again, uh, the current lieutenant governor conspired with Democrats to raise a point of order. He had a Democrat raise a point of order on the germaneness of the amendment, even though every lawyer in the chamber, including the Senate lawyer, said it was germane. He conspired to defeat it, and uh, he ruled that it was not germane to the bill. So we tried to fight for religious liberty, but he would hear nothing of it. It just goes to show that every decision he's made since he's been there has been to obstruct conservative legislation, and that's a real problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'm speaking with Chris McDaniel, who is running for lieutenant governor of Mississippi. And so uh, shifting focus, I think, from, you know, kind of the, the old school Democrat, as you describe it, to genuine conservatism. Um, how would you change this in terms of the the mechanics of that particular position and what the lieutenant governor's uh, abilities are and powers in the state of Mississippi uh, to make things more conservative? Because I feel like we've we've lost a lot of this understanding in the kind of this siloed view of Republican versus Democrat. Uh, and, and people tend to trust anyone who says that they're a Republican if that's their view or they're they trust a Democrat if, if they happen to be a Democrat. Voter, and they've kind of lost the the true meaning of what it means to champion conservative, genuine American values.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The lieutenant governor in our state is incredibly powerful. In fact, probably the strongest position in state government. The reason it is, he controls the Senate. He controls the appointment process of the senators to committees, but also the chairman of the committees. And those chairmen have incredible power. So he can basically build a team of senators that really will do his bidding, whatever he asks. And that's what he's done. The difference is this. I'm going to appoint conservatives to those positions. And we have a 36-16 advantage in that chamber. We are going to pass conservative legislation across the board. We're going to get rid of the income tax. We're going to get rid of the grocery tax. We're going to put an end to this woke culture in these universities and schools. These professors and teachers can't just teach and stop brainwashing these kids. We're going to bring them home. We're not going to let them do that anymore. You have all these conservative issues right now on the forefront of fighting for the survival of this country. We're going to make sure conservatives run the Senate and conservative legislation is passed. I promise you that.
2: Well, and where can people find out more about you and your campaign?
0: Uh, The good place to start, SenatorMcDaniel.com. Just SenatorMcDaniel.com on the web. If you're on Facebook, you can do a search in the box, Senator Chris McDaniel, and that will take you to the the Facebook page. But if you want to see a website, just SenatorMcDaniel.com.
2: Excellent. All right. Well, Chris McDaniel, running for lieutenant governor out of Mississippi. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much you. for uh, stopping by. And you know, for everyone who is in Mississippi, obviously, you know, you need to be looking at uh, the elections and all of the candidates on the the state and local level in Mississippi. And for everyone who is listening from any state across the country, we all need to be very concerned about who is running on the state and local level. So I like to take time uh, to to. Invite candidates from the state level. And if you're not in Mississippi and you're listening, but you might have friends, or you might uh, want to simply donate to a campaign, or you might simply want to be aware of what's going on in other states. And I think it's incredibly important that we all are very concerned about, first and foremost, our own home state. Your legislators should know your name. They should know that you and your family are Christians and are engaged and concerned about conservative policy. Uh, they should know you should have their cell phone numbers. Uh, you should be going down if you can and testifying uh, for for bills. Um, I, I did that in my home state of Colorado quite a few times uh, before and now I'm in Florida and, and plan to do that in uh, the Florida legislature as well as, as opportunity arises. Um, but you need to know your state and local legislators, not just what's happening on the federal level. And as we talk about so much on this program, the idea of federalism that our founder specifically embedded in our U.S. constitutional framework provides for state sovereignty and in a way that obviously D.C. and the, the corrupt uh, Washington mechanics of the big bureaucracy has tried to obfuscate. And I think uh, both parties have done that, unfortunately. There are a lot of people in Washington that are only concerned about Washington. There's some really good people as well. And we invite those people on here as well. But, uh, but really, we have to make sure that we understand state sovereignty and that we are encouraging our state and local legislators and the executive branch to maintain that and to also reclaim it. There is so much more that we can do that would actually affect the entire state, if not uh, the nation, with some of this legislation that, for example, came out of Um, Mississippi that that gave rise to the Dobbs opinion that overturned Roe Um, there's so much work that can be done we need to be engaged as Christians and we'll continue to talk about that right here on Jenna Ellis in the morning we'll be right back
0: Truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning.
2: Welcome back. And we were talking in the last segment about uh, being involved in the state and local level in politics and uh, being involved and engaged, of course, in our system of government and understanding the idea of federalism and why state sovereignty matters. And it matters that the people also in D.C. understand that premise. And uh, there's a great piece by uh, Kenny Cody in Newsmax, that is titled "Populism Will Define 2024," and I think this is a really fascinating piece. I would encourage everyone to go and read it. Um, it's again at Newsmax.com, and um, the premise is that uh, while populism may be viewed as primarily about progressive economic policy, it can also uh, it can also be a campaign platform for politicians, helping clarify those reality-based issues which voters unfailingly focus on and ultimately vote for. And uh, populism generally refers to kind of a range of political stances, but emphasize the idea of the people against more of the elite or the bureaucracy or the establishment. And there is no one that has been more anti-establishment, I think, than the 2016 version of Donald Trump that really tried to, uh, t- to tell everyone, I think very successfully, um, tried to shine a light on the deep state and on the swamp and has given uh, rise to a populist movement, at least from a lot of the base and a lot of the people. So the author of uh, this great piece, Populism Will Define 2024, Kenny Cody joins me now. So um, Kenny, I think it's a great piece. And, um, and I do think that you're right that the emphasis in 2024 will be more about populism. How uh, is this going to shape out at least right now within the GOP primary in your view?
1: In my opinion, Jenna, and thanks for having me on to this piece. I really appreciate it. Um, one thing that I think that 2016 changed is so many issues the Republican Party has changed on. You know, if you look at the foreign policy aspect, if you look at the anti-establishment aspect, even if you look at, like, the anti-deep state, the anti-NSA, CIA, FBI premises that a lot of the GOP candidates in 2024 are uh, coming up with, I think a lot of that stems from on populism, mainly because... I think that there's an aspect of the GOP that realizes that the establishment has taken advantage of voters and an advantage of Americans for so long that I think that people like Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump, Ron (coughs) DeSantis, and others are now trying to realize that they need to listen to voters, voters' concerns. And I think a lot of people think that populism is economic pragmatism as I say in the yeah. article. But I think that, that that that's a misunderstanding. If you look at populism in the dictionary, it's the ma- it's the common man versus the elite. And as I see in the piece, the elite can be corporations. It can be the government. It can be uh, those in the upper class, those CEOs, the billionaires. But I think a lot of the Republican populists define populism as more of a, uh elitist uh, control. And I think that... Ramaswamy, DeSantis, Trump, all these other politicians, and even like people like Perry Johnson, are trying to form populism as more of an anti-elitist perspective of politics, rather than this a- economic pragmatism or economic uh, progressivism that uh, Bernie Sanders and others have uh, tried to make populism be. <laughs>
2: And I think that's a really fascinating premise. Uh, and I'm talking with Kenny Cody, who is a conservative writer and activist from uh, Northeast Tennessee. He also serves as the regional director for Republicans for National Renewal and chairman of the Cock County GOP. And um, th- th- this whole idea of, of populism, um, I-, I think, is, is kind of a little bit of a vague term. And so you're right to define it in the 2016 and moving forward word context because a lot of people view Donald Trump as a populist. Um, you know, good or bad, and and I think a lot of conservatives would view that as a good thing and kind of a move toward, at least in in the common voters' perspective, as more of a we the people focused, more of of truly returning power back to the people, being anti-establishment, and having that as kind of a baseline premise for operation of our constitutional republic Um, instead of just being focused on economic theory, for example, um, kind of starting at that baseline and then moving forward and saying so. And then because of that, we have We have capitalism, of course. We have, you know, bringing back manufacturing uh, domestically. We have all of these other than uh, more conservative views that are that are almost built upon that. So I don't really see, um, at least within this operating definition that you and I are describing, Kenny, I don't see populism in conflict with a conservative view of government. Uh, Do you?
1: I don't either. I mean, I think populism, again, is just the idea of listening to voter bases. I think if you look at what populism is defined as throughout history, it's more of a strategy than it is an ideology, and I've been able to say that throughout history that – Whenever a voter has concerns, it's the same thing with, like, with nationalism. You know, Nationalism is defined by race, by ethnicity, but nationalism is really just caring about your country and prioritizing political policy that's going to prioritize Americans, that are going to prioritize people within your country, and, and policy is going to benefit the American people, benefit the voter base, benefit your constituents, and I think this – idea of populism sounds so evil to so many people because, I mean, you can go back through history and find all these dictators that use populism to get to an authoritarian mindset of politics. But really, to me, that's all politics is. I mean, politics is populism. And there's a a reason that people go to town halls and let their issues be known, whether that's district-wide, whether that's statewide, whether it's federal, nationwide, or what have you, the reason people host events is to hear from their constituents and actually listen to their constituents. And the reason the Republican Party has changed their views on so much policy, such as foreign policy, being, you know being now the anti-war party. I mean, it's, it's insane to me that the current Republican Party is the one that is advocating against the Ukraine, getting involved in the Ukrainian war, is advocating for the FBI to be either abolished or investigated, and the CIA using their federalized power needs to be investigated. This is the same party than embraced the Patriot just 20 years ago. So it's insane to me that the party has changed so much. But it's because of populism. I mean, they're they're listening to independent voters. They're listening to conservatives that may have leaned on the fence a little bit beforehand, and even before 2016. But now the Republican Party has changed so much that it's solidified this political position. I mean, we are now nearly seven to eight years. After the the uh, candidacy of Donald Trump, that was really the first populist since Pat Buchanan in the late 1990s. But now he has changed the the, the party so much that any politician that is even was even elected after his presidency. Now he's running again, of course, in 2024. But so many populists that are currently elected in a federal office or statewide office came after the presidency of Donald Trump. But his impact has had so much a populist overturn of the Republican Party that I think that it's been a positive movement. Like, I, I'm, a, I'm a traditional libertarian on a lot of things. I, I, I believe a lot of things – I'm an economics teacher, so I believe in libertarian economic policy. But I don't view populism as an economic progressive ideology. I think populism is just a strategy. It has no really set ideology to it. That's why some many historians, some many political science ma- uh, professors kind of can't put a real nail on it. They can't really put what populism actually is ideologically – so I've always used it as more of an avenue for for whatever ideological resolution or ideological position that you can come up with for an issue rather than a set ideology with set principles.
2: And that makes a lot of sense. So do you think that uh, American populism and how that has manifested itself in 2016 and moving forward – does look different than what we've seen historically in other so-called or or defined as populist movements in other countries that uh, that maybe traditional conservatives or even libertarians wouldn't advocate for.
1: Definitely, I mean, like, like I said before, like with pop, like, with populism throughout history, especially in in Europe, and especially like in the World War Two World War One era, populism was used as a way to sort of win over people and then take control of their lives. Like if you look at Hitler, if you look at Stalin, I guess you could call them some form of populist in getting elected. You know, Hitler's party, and, and the Nazi party was ele- technically elected by the German people, and then he took over. So I think the difference is, we are, the Republican Party is using populism to give the power back to the people, not to, not to give power to a certain individual, not to give it this authoritarian base to a certain individual or to a certain Republican Party. We are fighting back, Republican Republicans are fighting back, and those who adhere to the populist ideology want to fight back against people who have abused the American people for so long. As as I said, the military-industrial complex reform policy being anti-CIA, anti-FBI, anti-NSA with the uh, deep state, with these federalized bureaucracies. If you're looking at these positions, you are actually giving power back to the people by addressing what concerns they have with the federal government and with the elite and kind of getting rid of that abuse. And while populist overtures in the uh, in the 40s and the 50s over in Europe, they use populism as an avenue to have power and then – basically imprison or have authority over people. I and mean, that's not what the current GOP is about. The current GOP is about addressing what abuses the, the government is currently doing and exposing that in the mainstream media, exposing that in private media, and exposing that through federal government officials and federal policy. So I think – Overall, I think populism, currently defined by the GOP, is not being used as a as a way to power. It's actually giving power back to the people instead of encouraging a set few to have these authoritarian positions. I, I don't think it's being abused. I think it's actually giving people, voters, and the American people more power to have say in what their politicians are doing because ultimately – we're the taxpayers. We're the ones that are, that are paying their salaries. So we should have a voice in the policies that are getting enacted in D.C. and statewide and and even in counties and local districts and local localities. I mean, we have to have some sort of voice if we're paying money to do a job. And if we don't listen to those people, to me, it's more authoritarian than anything. If people aren't using populism to listen to their voter bases and listening to their constituents, I think that is the real problem. If you're not using populism at this point, even if you don't think that should be the overall strategy for the GOP, if you're not even using some aspects of populism, I think, in my opinion, that you're really not listening to your voters and you're not listening to the American people.
2: And I'm, talk- I'm talking with uh, Kenny Cody who is a conservative writer and activist and his great piece in newsmaxcom is titled populism will define 2024 and and I think this is where uh, Kenny definitions really matter because the left has consistently tried to use more of uh, this this old European notion of populism that did pave the way for uh, dictators to assume more power and we're trying purposefully in uh, 2016 and especially especially during the first four years of Donald Trump leading into the 2020 election uh, as painting him as more of a tyrant by saying, you know, he's a populist and comparing him, I think uh, purposefully and intentionally mistakenly uh, to other forms of populism that the America first movement truly was not about. And the way that you describe uh, populism in the state of the current GOP, I think really aptly describes the America first movement and utilizing populism as a vehicle to, uh, to simply listen to constituents and to make sure that everyone um, is participating and has access to our system of government and the whole America First movement um, that, that Donald Trump started. And of course, uh, Governor DeSantis and also Vivek Ramaswamy and others in the GOP, um, who I sincerely believe are America First candidates as well, um, have really harnessed, and and so I, I think this the, the lesson here overall, um, which which is very interesting in terms of how this is playing out for 2024 and beyond. But the, the, a real lesson here is that we do need to define our terms and push back against some of these uh, elitists in. Washington and on the left, who try to manipulate that definition. Uh, similarly, maybe with how some people who are against uh, Christians would try to use this term "Christian nationalism" um, against us, or to say people who are Christians and care about our country and our patriots are somehow, you know, advocating for a theocracy, which is totally not the definition of Christian nationalism on anybody's scale. But there are so many different definitions that uh, that we we can't just assume a common definition or have that as a basic assumption in the realm of politics, we have to be careful to always say, here's what I mean by that term, and this is how I'm employing it, and this is why it's a good thing in this context, and contrast that with uh, the left's definitions. And so um, in just the last like two minutes that I have with you here, um, how do you think this kind of vehicle is, um, is going to be effective overall against maybe some of the challengers uh, to Donald Trump in 2024, like uh, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, who are uh, uh, basically their their philosophical ideology is um, what President Trump says. I think DeSantis is more conservative on social issues like LGBT and so forth. Um, that that President Trump has you know said he he's not as concerned about, um, but on the the basic metric, um, how do you think that this is going to be successful or not with some of these challengers?
1: Well, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question. I went on a podcast yesterday. It's called The Brian Nichols Show. We actually had this conversation. Uh, Brian's kind of currently a Vivek Ramoswami supporter. And, you know, one of the reasons, and, and this is nothing, I, I, I like DeSantis fine, and I think I think he's a great governor of Florida, but I think one of the reasons that Ramaswamy has caught on so much with the American people is I think he's running the camp the populist campaign this nationalist campaign that people thought Governor DeSantis would run. I think that the reason he is increasing his polling is because he's talking about things like abol- abolishing the Department of Education, abolishing the, de- de- the Department of Justice, saying that he's going to fight the culture war, saying that he is going to give money back to his money back to his fundraisers. If you've done it to his campaign, you're going to get money back. I mean, he is having all these populist overturns to uh, to reject the establishment, going on CNN, going into the lines down on MSNBC, and letting his populist message be known. He's even said, and come out, he said he would pardon Edward Snowden and pardon Julian Assange. Pretty much two of the biggest populist positions during the presidency of Donald Trump and afterwards is that the deep state went after private citizens, trying to silence them for trying to expose government secrets. And I think the reason Ramaswamy has caught on so much is I think there are people who want to hear a new voice for the GOP. And he is the same Trumpian, America First candidate that comes from outside of politics, somebody who was in the private sector, somebody who came out of pretty much nowhere and started having this populist messaging. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I had no idea who Vivek Ramaswamy was. I think I may have known name before, but I I did not know what he did. I had no idea what his connection was to the GOP. But people started listening to his message, having embraced Yeah, and, action, and
2: and Kenny, and we'll have to it leave off. it there, but uh, Kenny, Cody, really appreciate that. And I think that that's really well said, that um, Vivek is advocating full steam ahead for uh, for populism. And maybe that's true, that he's running the campaign that all of us thought Ron DeSantis would. But we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
0: Speaking truth with love, this is Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
2: Welcome back. And uh, that was a really fascinating last segment, uh, I think, with Kenny Cody talking about the definition of populism and how we have as conservatives and I think um, overall... the the GOP as a party has typified uh, populism as a good thing and as something that is more of a mechanism toward a civic engagement and voter and constituency engagement, uh, contrasting that to how the left that uh, really does want to concentrate power in the elite and especially in Washington, uh, how they view populism and are using that term negatively. And, and I think, um, and if you missed that segment, definitely go back and listen to the podcast. You can always, uh, listen to this show as soon as, uh, it, uh, as soon as we're done with the live show, it'll be posted at AFR.net. You can always go back and listen. And, um, and I think that the the overarching view of why Christians need to make sure that we are very clear on our definitions obviously matter. And this isn't just in terms of politics and government and civic engagement and pushing back against the left and fighting the culture wars. You know, all of those things are very important. But we also need to make sure that we uh, are very clear about defining our terms uh, in terms of doctrine as well, and in terms of what we believe about Scripture and what we believe about the Person of God, and this is where the the left, on purpose, and this whole move toward a post truth society, has on purpose tried to make definitions very vague. Uh, they are using words and terms in a way that it not only is devoid of a specific meaning, but even worse than that, they are leaving the term up to a definition of whatever the listener or the speaker wants to believe. And and so typically if you are reading uh, a book or you're listening to someone like you, like you're listening to me right now, then we have uh, something in, in terms of um, interpretation that is called the author's intent. And it's a principle of originalism and methodology of interpretation. And this is true also for hermeneutics and in terms of the philosophy of how we interpret rightly Scripture. We obviously don't read Scripture saying, well, what does that mean to me? What do, what do I derive and I think that you know this psalm means and how do I um, apply it to me? And we shouldn't. Um, a lot of times Christians are very guilty of that. We have to go back and ask the question, what did God mean? What did the author mean? And we use a lot of different uh, other devices to get to the precise meaning, which include uh, not only understanding who the author is, but the context, um, so the, the words around uh, the, the specific word or phrase that we're looking at interpreting. Um, we use, for example, in Scripture, if you take one verse out of context, you have to look at the whole con- preceding and then uh, after context and the full scope of what the chapter is, and what the entire book is. You have to look at the historical context. Um, You have to look at the grammatical context, the syntax. Um, Is this supposed to be a literal uh, verse that is talking about a literal historical event, or a quotation uh, from Jesus, for example? Or is this supposed to be uh, poetry, Uh, for example, like the Psalms? Is this supposed to be uh, a Psalm of David, and we understand that the literal interpretation is that this is one of the poetics. And so, when people often push back on, uh, you know, some of the things that that I tweet or say on social media, it's it's hilarious that the left gets more upset about things that I post about scripture and my Christian faith than anything else, literally anything else. And that goes for whether I'm talking about, uh, you know, working for Trump, supporting Ron DeSantis, or being a conservative, you know, none of those things make anybody as riled up as when I talk about my Christian faith. And that should give us an indication of something. Um, but one of my favorite objections on social media is is when people say, well, how can you have a literal interpretation of Scripture? So you really think that, um, you know, the Psalms are literal or, you know, they'll take something totally out of context and say that because I believe that the Bible can be interpreted literally, then it means that every single verse in the Bible is meant in context and by authorial intent to be taken literally. And we know that that's not true from the context of some verses and books of the Bible. They're meant to be read as poetry. They're meant to be read in the the context that the author meant. And so by a literal meaning and a literal interpretation... It's yeah, it's literally poetry, and that's okay. And and we know, for example, that uh, you know people understand that Shakespeare, a Shakespeare play, is is meant to be read and viewed because of who the author is, and it's supposed to be a a playwright. Uh, transcript and it's supposed to be a script of a of a play that that then people go and play act and so it's not meant to be a literal historical uh, account of anything and so when we're talking about um, interpretation of course of of whether it's the bible it's any other written instrument um, of course the u.s constitution is is what we talk about most often on this program we have to go back to the meaning of of not only originalism, but some of these mechanics of interpretation that are so important to deriving the actual meaning of a word or a phrase or the full scope of an article or a provision, um, or if it comes to scripture, um, a verse or a chapter or a book of scripture. And these principles for interpreting a written instrument are very important. And what the left has continued to do is tried to, in a post-truth society, say, well, the author's intent doesn't matter. What actually matters is how this affects you and how you as the reader want to take the message. And so imagine if that was in communication as a whole. If me as a, as a person telling, um, you know, for example, my mom or dad and saying, I love you. And my meaning, of course, is very clear. I'm expressing, you know, a, a profound respect and affection for my parents. But the meaning of the author of, of this speech, that doesn't matter. They're free to just take it however they want. And they can interpret it as I hate you, as disdain or disrespect. Well, then we could never have communication, that's meaningful and that's accurate. And that's what the left is purposefully trying to do when they remove uh, meaning from the author's intent and when there are words and phrases, even like populism or conservatism or extremist or you know whatever, and this is or even man and woman, uh, genders, when they are trying on purpose to make a completely fluid definition. They're removing not only the author's intent behind communication, but now they're going a step further and they're trying to remove a description of a term that corresponds with reality. And so imagine, and and I'm sitting here because I always have coffee in the morning um, and I love coffee. It's it's just it's amazing. Um, you know more well. While the Irish said that beer is is God's gift uh, to man, and that's how we know that there is a loving God. I personally believe it's coffee, and um, and I, I just I absolutely love coffee. So, I have my coffee cup, and when I describe coffee cup, I'm sure that a lot of you have in your mind a mental picture of what a mug looks like, and you know, and and you may not know the color of it. I haven't described it further, but when I say coffee cup. You are not thinking, in your mind, elephant. You're not thinking pirate ship. You're not thinking, um, you know, soda can even, um, something similar. You are thinking of something that, you know, probably has a handle and it's, it's a coffee mug and, you know, the, the size of it is probably roughly um, what, what you're thinking of without even seeing a picture of it. You understand and you're excluding of any other objects across the face of the earth. Well, why is that? Because we have a common definition of what coffee cup means. We also understand that physically sitting here in reality, you know what coffee cup is and what coffee cup is not. There are contours to reality there are sharp definitions to say that the meets and bounds in the physical reality of this object that i'm describing can be known and correspond to physical reality and that's just common sense and and i think even you know whether we understand the whole logic behind that even you know my my nephews who are under 5 they know that when you're describing an object that means that you are singling out one particular physical thing that has boundaries and you're contrasting that from everything else in physical reality but what the left is doing they're not not only are they doing this with meaning and with terms and all of this but they're actually trying to have a vague definition to physical reality, it would be the as bizarre, crazy, and stupid to say that my coffee cup is on a continuum of reality, and it can, it can identify as you know maybe a um, a soda pop can or a car or an elephant or whatever if it wants to, right? That doesn't match physical reality of this little cup that I can pick up I can drink out of I I know that you know the lip if I turn it over because of gravity and and how uh, liquid you know moves that it will spill out if I turn it over I mean all of these things that correspond with reality it would be absolutely ludicrous of me to say that my coffee cup exists on a continuum based on either how it defines itself or how I want to define it within the parameters of reality. This is what the left is doing to definitions that have specific boundaries that correspond with reality. So the same thing that they're doing, for example, to gender, and this is purposeful. They're trying to say that the physical empirical view of the meets and bounds of a male body versus a female body or chromosomes even on the molecular level that we can define empirically that are part of the physical universe. That doesn't actually tell us meaningful information that then we describe and ascribe a particular label to that is a word in linguistics that then matches language so that we can communicate. Because communication is all about making sure that we all understand uh, what it is that the author means to say and what the hearer understands the author to have said or to have written down. And miscommunication happens when either the author isn't precise or, you know, didn't say it in the right way or the listener misunderstands what the author intended. There's some type of miscommunication. And so the best way that we can be the most clear is to have precise words and have a multitude of words. the, the concept of a synonym, I think, is is really fascinating. And if I was ever uh, going for like a doctorate in, in English or anything like that, which I've contemplated, it would be fun. Um, I would love to write a thesis on a synonym because I don't actually think that there is such a thing as a 100% precise synonym. And Shakespeare also... Um, understood that. and that's why he created, I think it's something like a thousand words in English because he wanted to particularly describe a a thing, an emotion, uh, a, a, a anything that he wanted to describe that he didn't have a precise word for. And so when we have things that are synonyms that um, sometimes describe in general the same kind of bucket of, whether it's emotions or objects, um, you know, so I could say coffee cup, mug, um, you know, and and both of those are fairly synonymous. They're not actually precisely the same thing, and so the more words that we can use to best and most accurately describe reality, we can better communicate, and this is what the left tries purposefully to tear down because the more that they can confuse our understanding of the world around us, the more that they can have a post-truth society and say there is no truth, there is no knowable reality. And this is why they're going for something so basic as the biological definitional difference between man and woman and why they are purposefully saying that we can't know based on an empirical contour and definition whether a person is a man or a woman, because if it's based on a subjective feeling that can change, I woke up as a woman, but I can go to bed as man, man, or, or gender queer, and I don't even know, or there's 72 genders now, I don't even know how many the state of New York has by now, then they can purposefully confuse our understanding of reality. And based on that confusion, then they can step in and say, but, aha, we have experts. We have experts that can now tell you and cut through this confusion for you. And so now we have all of these uh, leftist established experts that we can hold up and say, now you have to go to the expert so that they can define your reality for you, often through medication or through surgeries or through other things, that then the left ultimately can do what? Control you and can tell you that God doesn't exist, only the experts do, and their definition of reality. We as Christians need to push back against that and to make sure that we are clear and precise in our definition and our employment of terms so that we can clearly communicate, we can have clear meaning, and most importantly, we can continue to advocate for the truth. I'll see you tomorrow morning right here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.